When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Police responded to a 911 call. Dramatic video of gun insanity in the Bronx. Police releasing a new video of a person that they are still trying to track down. Defund the police is not the answer. Many people surveyed said they just don't feel safe in the city. It's a shooting outside of a store. This is Bo Deedles. True crime. Police this morning are searching for the person who turned this Harlem platform to a crime scene. A Red Apple Media Podcast Network production. Now, here's Bo Deedle. Welcome to Bo Deedle, Real True Crime Stories. These are stories that are not made up, and these are real history stories. And we're going to talk today about, at the time, was the largest mass murder in New York City history. It was called the Palm Sunday Massacre. Why? Because it happened on Palm Sunday, and I believe it was 1984. Very good. (laughs) And what happened was there was the murder of 10 people, and eight of them were children under the age of 12, 12 and under, and one little baby girl survived hiding under the bed, and she was 18 months old, and she was the only survivor of this. So let's start the story from the beginning. At the time, I was working as in the homicide team in the 7-5 detective squad. And we had a lot of murders in the 7-5 precinct. It's in uh, Brooklyn near City Line, East New York, all over. It, it takes up a big area. But we were the murder capital every year. Every year, we had over 100 murders averaged over 100, 120 murders a year in that one precinct. Now, you got, you know, 70 precincts in New York. One precinct <laughs> has all those murders. So it was Palm Sunday, and I was not working that day. But what I used to do is I used to call in from wherever I was and, uh, hey, what's going on? And I remember one thing, torrential rain. To this day, I remember my mind is going back. The rain was coming down, and I called up, and uh, one of the cops answered the phone. He says, uh, yeah, I said, what's happening? I said, uh, if anybody calls for me, just I'm on a plan B. What plan B meant that I was supposed to be working, but I wasn't working. <laughs> we don't have to get into what, why I was talking about a plan B. But next thing is the, uh, the officer said to me, Bo, we got like five dead, five, six dead on Liberty Avenue. I said, what? That moment, I said, I'll be right in. So I dropped everything. I got my car. I rushed over there. He gave me the address. It was 1080 Liberty Avenue. Like little things like this stick in your mind. <laughs> and it was a, uh, you got to understand, there were storefronts there. But this was a house where people lived. It looked like kind of a storefront. It wasn't a real house. But it was a storefront house. And I'll never forget, I walked in there. First thing that happened is I see my lieutenant, Herbie Holman's there, and he goes, what the hell are you doing here? And I says, uh, what are you doing here? I said, first of all, all my homicides are all cleared up. That means that I had all my investigations that I was doing were all cleared. I locked up whoever had to be locked up. I closed the cases out, and I, when I walked in there, 
And I saw this crime scene, which I'll never forget. And I actually have photographs of it. All these people were dead, all shot in the head. There was one that really jumps out was this little child grabbing with his arms extended, a little boy, and one little girl was holding a jello chocolate putting in the left hand with a spoon in the right hand with a head back with bullet holes in their head. These were all headshots and uh, small caliber headshots where you would see the holes in their head. And I walked around. Like I said, there was this one little girl. There was a uniform uh, police officer, female, that was on the scene. She was there, and she took this little girl out, and she ended up becoming a three-star chief in the New York City Police Department, and we'll go into that in a little while. And she ends up adopting adopting this little girl, and uh, it's her daughter today. It's, it's kind of a, a high point of such a tragic, uh, horrific uh, murder scene. So now I get it. My lieutenant says, what are you doing here? I said, what are you doing here? I says, I want to find out. I want to be involved with whoever killed all these young kids and all these people. So he goes, all right, Deedle, you're on it. So now we start investigating. Now, during that time, this hit every newspaper in New York. Mass murder, Palm Sunday massacre. This was the big, big mumbo-jumbo case. So this wasn't like the nun rape case. It wasn't just me and my partner on it. I was part of a great task, task force. I'll never forget Jimmy McCalvin. You had uh, my lieutenant, Herbie Holman, probably was the best lieutenant that anybody could ever work for, a great detective lieutenant. And he was the uh, the CEO of the 7-5 Detective Squad. And we had all these detectives converged on the 7-5. They called in the task force. I believe there was up near 200. The best detectives in the Bronx, John Hennessy, the best detective in Brooklyn homicides, and, and Jerry Maglio. Uh, no, Maglio. And uh, uh, they all came in, and now we had groups of detectives, and we would put on the blackboard different angles. Now, we knew one thing. Who had a reputation of wiping out families was these Colombian hit gangs. And that was the first inference that we thought. Now we found out that the father, Bermudez, and we couldn't talk to him. We found out in our investigation that he was uh, dealing cocaine and he was a cocaine dealer. So we find this out. Of course, he doesn't want to talk to us. But now... Something comes up where there's a phone call where this guy calls up and he said, I looked through the window. I saw what happened. I saw the killer and all that. So now I start going on that investigation. And the guy would call me from a pay phone in Brooklyn. And then he would not call back. Then he would call back. This went on for about a week. And then he told me, go into the field in the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens and take your shirt off. I did everything he told me to do. This guy was having me run around for a week. Finally, we set up where, which phone he was calling from, and we grabbed him. We bring him into the station house, and I'll never forget Herbie Holman was there, and we had him sat down. And we thought this was going to be a great witness. And then all of a sudden he goes, I really didn't see anything. And I look at him, you didn't see anything. He goes, well, you know, this is a big case. I just wanted to put myself about this case. I'll never forget my lieutenant, God bless Herbie Holman, he's still alive. 
He grabbed him by his throat and he threw him through the wall. He actually broke him through the wall. And he said, you son of a bitch. He says, you have us running around for a week making us follow you here, there, you piece of garbage. I should lock you up. We threw him out of the station. But this is, you know, something that happened. Now, you had other groups that were investigating one thing. Now, I had a great partner, Jimmy McCalvin. He was an African-American detective. And me and Jimmy were working together. Now what we did was we had to get immunity for the father with his drug dealing. So we went to the district attorney and we uh, got immunity so he could talk to us and tell us all about uh, his drug dealing, who he's involved with, because we figured that this is where it was coming from. Now we learned from the father that there was was, uh, a person that he was dealing drugs with from the Bronx, and his name was Christopher Thomas. Now, Christopher Thomas, I believe, had a job working as an operator for the police department at one time. Vaguely, I remember that, but this was not really a sheer suspect at this point. We had to talk to uh, the father more and learn what was going on. He used to come to the house and drop off the cocaine and the crack cocaine. So now we're starting to develop the fact that he owed $7,000, $7,000 Christopher Thomas owed to Bermudez. So he wasn't going to give him any more cocaine. So the only thing was that he would come to that house. Everybody knew him. The family knew him. So now all of a sudden, now we're getting a motive. Why would he wipe everybody out in this house? Now the motive is that they had to know him. And that was what we banked on, that that was the motive. So... Again, you had about five different areas with uh, teams of detectives working. This one working, but Jimmy McCalvin and I started working this area on Christopher Thomas. So now we learned that he also he also lived in Far Rockaway. So we're just doing some background check. We were able the ballistics were ever recover rounds that were at the scene. I think there were 25 caliber, 22 caliber rounds that the shell casings were recovered in the murder scene. So we had them as evidence. And so now I tell, we find out that Christopher Thomas lived on Grand Concourse with his girlfriend. So I said to Jimmy, I says, let's take a ride up there. Let's use some ruse, the word ruse. I said, let's use a ruse that we're up there for something else. So we go to the girlfriend's house on the Grand Concourse, bang on the door, police. All of a sudden, she opens the door a little bit, and she goes, yeah, what's my... I said, hey, where's Christopher? She goes, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, you tell Christopher Thomas, the next time he breaks into a washing machine, we're for the 4-4 squad. Now, the 4-4 squad is up in the Bronx. So I wanted to make believe that we were detectives for the 4-4 squad, throwing him completely off that we were Brooklyn homicide detectives. So this moron, we wanted to let him think that we were investigating him breaking into washing machines. <laughs> it sounds like jer- like a jerky thing, but it kind of worked. So now, all of a sudden, she's there. She closes the door, and she said, well, he's not here. I said, well, when he comes back, you tell him, call the 4-4 squad, ask for me. Uh, just tell him both for the 4-4 squad. No, it wasn't for the 4-4 squad. I was for the 7-5 detective squad. So now we get in the car. All of a sudden, I remember distinctly this thing 
like Sid's mother calls him a thing. This was a thing that came up to the car. His eyes were rolling around, Christopher Thomas. And he goes, uh, you, you guys are looking for me? Uh, I'm Christopher Thomas. I didn't break into any washing machines. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, you stay the frig out of that basement and stay away from the washing machine, from the laundry room. And he, oh, okay. As we drive right away, I look at Jimmy McCalvin. And I go, that's our guy. I mean, you could just tell what a psychopath he was. His eyes were rolling around like he must have been on on crack right then and there. But the craziness projected right there. And being a detective, you get the sixth sense when you feel something. And this guy, and Jimmy and I felt this was our guy. So we go back to report what's going on. We're now focusing on him. So now all of a sudden we get a search warrant to find out up there in Far Rockway where he lived. He burnt the house down. So we get the emergency service in there, and then all of a sudden the emergency service found a shell casing in the burnt-out building up in uh, up in Far Rockaway. Uh, and that shell casing matched up to one of the shell casings that were in the murder scene. Not enough yet because that anybody could have thrown it there. This is in a burnt-out area. So now we have that evidence. The other side is we start interviewing some kids that were outside out in front of the storefront because this was street level where you actually could look in there. So there were some kids that said they saw some. So now we're interviewing back and forth. We're interviewing back and forth. The kids were finding out what they actually saw. Oh, I saw, the, I saw this guy in there. Describe him. All right, now we get Bermudez to give us all the information. $7,000 was owed to him by Christopher Thomas. He knew the family. He's been there many times. Oh, light bulb goes off. So why do you have to kill everybody? Obviously, because they could identify him. And now we started going on that focus. So now I became friendly with Bermudez. Actually, Bermudez spent the night... Uh, in the house, and it was one reporter, a Spanish reporter, I forget her name. She spent the night with him. God knows what she did with him, but I don't know. I wasn't there as a witness, but she wrote the story in the New York Post, spending a night in the death house on Liberty Avenue, and I don't know uh, how she got him to talk. I don't know. Well, in any case, she wrote a story about what happened with uh, inside the death house there, talking to Bermuda's the father. So now we're continuing to investigate. We actually put a tail on Christopher Thomas. So we, we're, we're surveilling him with another team. Now I interviewed a kid. We bring him into the station house. Now we do what they call a photo array of six pictures. And now all of a sudden, I think it was number four, the kid identifies points to Christopher Thomas. And I said, are you sure? He goes, that looks like the guy. So now I go to the DA and I tell the DA, we got a photo array. I think we got enough to lock him up to bring him in. And then we could do a real lineup with this witness that actually saw him during the commission of the murders. So now the DA says, okay. But prior to that, I said to Bermudez, I want you to make a phone call to Christopher Thomas you tell him you're going to meet him up by the fruit market up there, Hunts Point. You'll meet him up there. So what I wanted to do was plan an interaction with Christopher Thomas and Bermudez because I knew Christopher was coming with a gun, and I used to carry a double-barrel sort of shotgun. 
and it had the slug in one and 12 gauge in the other one. It was, it was small because I used to put it in a paper bag. Whenever I would go into a building, I'd put the gun together and pop it together, pop two slugs in there, and I would use that when I would be arresting someone. For some reason, when someone has a gun and they see a shotgun, they're less apt to shoot at you because you got a shotgun pointed at them. So I used to carry that all the time. But the reality is I used to fight with it. I clocked a lot of guys with it, and I never killed anybody with it. But this day, I told Bermudas, I'll lay in the back of the car. You're going to go to Hunts Point. When he comes out, as soon as I see him with a, sh- with a gun in his hand, I think I'm going to have enough cause. I'm going to cut this guy in half with the shotgun. That was my intentions. He killed 10. Bo was going to take him out. I never killed anybody on the force. But this guy, if he popped out a gun, he was going down with my old trusty shotgun. Never happened. Of course, the surveillance team lost him. They didn't know where he was. So now we're searching. Where is Christopher Thomas? So we start searching. I said, let me search the correction facilities. Sure enough, he was in the Bronx House of Detention. Now check this out. What was he in there for? Raping and sodomizing his mother. I'll repeat it. Raping and sodomizing his mother. He was arrested for raping and sodomizing his own mother. Oh. So now we take him out of there. Now all of a sudden it's leaking out that we got the we got a suspect in the largest mass murder in New York City. And again, my partner Jimmy and I and Jerry Maglio was always with us. Jerry, a great first grade detective, learned a lot of things from him and a lot of the other detectives. So we bring him in there and now we do the lineup. And I think Chief Nakasha was the chief of detectives. He was there. He goes, Bo, when you do the lining up, give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down if he IDs. So now all of a sudden, the, the, they get a legal aid lawyer for Christopher Thomas. And the next thing is, we have the kid in there. Kid's scared stiff, the main witness. So the guy goes, oh, I, re- I really, he was scared. And I saw he was scared. I says, well, can you identify him? He goes, I, I really can. I can only saw the, the left side of his face. So I go like this. I said, hold on, hold on, hold on. I run into the uh, into the uh, the viewing thing with the two-way mirror, and I go like this. I said, turn to your left, everybody. So Chief Nicastro is there, and he gives me a thumbs up. I go thumbs up, down. I, I went up and down like we don't have a decision yet. Sure enough, when we slanted them the right way, the kid goes, bang, number four. He identifies him. We got the case. Now we're able to put other pieces of the case together, evidence and all that kind of stuff that was uh, evidence that we were able to connect a lot more pieces of the evidence. Because, again, this was not done by Bo Deedle and his partner, like the nun rape. This was done many great detectives with ballistics and other investigative detectives put together, headed up by Herbie Holman, my lieutenant, was the main uh, one that oversaw the whole thing, and uh, that was something that it was it was a remarkable, remarkable case, and it sticks in my mind. Over the years, over the years, I sent letters to the parole board about not letting this guy Christopher Thomas out of jail, and uh, I was told by some of my Italian friends who were doing life sentences that this guy used to have a picture of me in his cell, Christopher Thomas. To this day, he's well, he's out now, but I just hope uh, if he has the balls, if he wants to face me, face me from the front. Don't face me from the back. And he's out now. He may be probably by now. He might be the mayor of a large city in America by now, with the way our the way our our, our judicial system is is occurring right now. But again, I 
tried to keep him in jail as long as I could. I said in my some of my letters that I locked up guys that committed a double homicides and justice has to be there for these children who will never see a Christmas, never see an Easter, never graduate from school, elementary school, high school. They're all dead and they never had their lives and this crumb bun should be incarcerated for the rest of his life. Didn't happen. He's out. So to say I'm a little uh, a little upset about it, I'm very upset about it. And you know what? The thing is as follows. This is our judicial system. There has to be justice for the victims, and that's what I used to do, try to stand up for justice for the victims. We had accolades. We got awards from this state. We got awards from the city council. Every detective group in America gave us awards. And again, I was part of a great task force of the best detectives in the world, the New York City detectives. And, uh, you know, I'd love for you to ask me any questions you like about this. This is my producer. Hi, my name is Gabriela Lopez. I just wanted to ask you a few questions about this case. This story, when I I first came across the story, when I was looking um, for research on Two weeks ago, the prior case, I found this, and this story shook me to the core. It is so disturbing reading it, and just you when you look online, you can see pictures of how, and they blur all their faces out and stuff. But how everybody was sitting, and you said that girl with the pudding cup. I saw that, and like my heart broke. But reading that he got released after thirty three years, just because he was on good behavior hmm. is ridiculous. Yeah, you know, you know, Gab, you're young, and it just, it's just funny, and I'll be very honest with you, some of the girls were very pretty, just like you, and I'm looking at you, and I'm just saying to myself, that vivid memory goes back to me with those young kids being shot in the head like that, and this crumb bun is out now, and God knows, they probably gave him a ton of money, too. Maybe he sued, maybe he sued, Maybe he sued this police department because he felt as though we, we mistreated him some way or whatever. But again, I uh, after this case, it's just funny. I then fly out with the Saudi Arabians. I I went on a uh, thing. They came into town. I was at a bodyguard company, and then they had me jump out of a plane. I broke my leg in half, and that was the end of my career. But I came on crutches during the trial, and I was on crutches. But here's the real killer. The jury in Brooklyn, the jury of morons in Brooklyn, only convicted him of 10 counts of manslaughter. Now, this is going to knock you off your chair. They came back and said, because he was on cocaine, he really didn't know what he was doing. (laughs) So, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, if you want to kill somebody, take a couple lines and and shoot somebody and just say you were high on cocaine so you didn't know what you're doing. This is the answer of this moron jury. They should have convicted him of 10 life sentences in a row. And this is what we dealt with. And for me to say I'm angry, I think you can hear my voice. This is ridiculous. And God forbid if your family members were killed by this piece of garbage, now they released him out of jail after that short period of time. But where's the justice of those those little kids? The little three or four year old little boys grabbing for their moms. What about the little girl who is is an adult, is a is a young woman now, and now she's walking around. I could only imagine how she feels knowing that this guy who killed her family is walking. She hid under the bed, the little girl, 
and it was just it's just an honor this is just remarkable what happened the police officer lady the woman police officer her name is Joanne Jaffe Jaffe Joanne Jaffe who I remember from the two five I had worked with her prior and she was the one who was on the scene she found a little girl underneath the bed hiding 18 months old so in reality the little girl I really don't think has and he, who knows? Who knows? I don't know if she has a memory. But she ended up taking her. She ended up adopting her. Wow. And to this day, it's her daughter. And Joanne Jaffe became a three-star chief of the New York City Police Department. I think it's just such a remarkable story as really far as is. I'm concerned. Whereas out of this horrific thing, something good came out of it. Yeah, that that is very – it's heart it's heartwarming knowing that there are good – there are still – Good people out there that will do the right thing, and you know yeah. that she's you know, safe. You know, now. you know what else? You you got to remember what I'm saying here on this. This was not a case where Bo and his partner did it. Mm-hmm. I have to give all the credit in the world to all the great detectives. Uh, I think a lot of them have passed since this case. I know for a fact a lot of them have passed, and uh, they did fantastic jobs. They were a tremendous amount of investigative skills that would utilize on all aspects to make this case and make it happen. And it just, you know, it's always hard work equals success. But, you know, sometimes if you don't work hard, you're not going to get that success. And all the detectives, I want to give my compliments to working and learning from some of the greatest detectives in the world, which I learned. That only made me a better detective by learning from the best. Wow. Wow. All right. Do you want to talk about anything else? You want to wrap yeah. Up? Well, you know, you know. Again, the, this is a story that was the largest mass murder in New York history. And again, these stories, I like people to bring them in. They don't just happen. This case investigation went on. I believe it was over three and a half, four months before we were able to lock, you know, lock them up. Wow. And uh, again, this was the only time I really believed in my whole police career where I felt as though if he came out with a gun, I was going to I was going to execute him. And I wasn't going to give him a chance to shoot my partner or shoot me because I wouldn't think I would have one. And I would say to a grand jury, he came out with a gun, he killed 10 people, I killed him. Yeah. that. And that's it. When I was doing research for this also, I saw... I saw a video of one of the other detectives that was on this case, and he was saying how he's not for the death penalty or anything... But in this specific case, that, you know, he might have been for it. Well, just to show you, this was a jury of his peers in Brooklyn, Brooklyn County. And these morons came back, said that he killed 10 people, including eight children. And he's not guilty of murder because he was on crack cocaine. He didn't know what he was doing. So my advice to people, take a couple of lines and kill who you like. Only kidding. Only kidding. <laughs> but, again, we'll be back next week for another story, Gab. And, yes. uh, you know, I'll, I'll, one day, if, you, if your stomach can handle it, I'll show you some real pictures. Oh, yeah. Very graphic pictures that will understand what's in my mind. And that's burnt into my brain. When they say, oh, he's a tough detective, one tough cop. No, I still think about those children. And it's a haunting thing to know that this creep is out there now. Yeah, you know, maybe we'll come up against each other again one day. If he's a man, he'll face me. If he's not a man, maybe he'll do something from back of me. Yeah. And <laughs> all I say is, if you're a man, I'm I'm here, and I'm ready for you. 
<laughs> All right. And again, everybody, thank you. for This is a true crime story, and we'll be back next week talking about another major case or talk about another major case where I have information. And I thank you very much. Thank you.